Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, a fast-growing church planting network, simply called The Network, is facing criticism by a group of former staff and lay leadership. Also, Saddleback Church out in California has announced that an investigation is complete into their new pastor, and they have found him innocent of a pattern of abuse, which he'd been accused of by members of his former church. We begin today with news that an employee of disgraced Wall Street financer Bill Huang is suing his former employer. The employee says he was forced to donate to a Christian charitable fund. Yeah, Archegos employee Brendan Sullivan alleges in the lawsuit that Bill Huang, the founder of Archegos and the affiliated Grace and Mercy Fund, recklessly mismanaged the money in the so-called Deferred Compensation Fund and lied in order to cover up his actions. Huang was arrested and charged with racketeering, conspiracy, securities fraud, and wire fraud April 27th. He is currently free on a $100 million bond and awaiting trial. Yeah, now the lawsuit says that Archegos forced employees to give back bonus money and invested it in stocks that it then transferred to the Grace and Mercy Foundation. The foundation then allegedly sold the stocks for a profit, avoiding taxation, while at the same time providing tax deductions for Archegos. The employee fund ultimately lost a total of $500 million, the suit says, and Sullivan says he is owed $30 million in deferred compensation. The law firm Brown Rudnick filed the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, or ERISA, lawsuit on July the 5th in New York's Southern District Court. Huang, Archegost, Grace and Mercy, and several of Huang's associates are named as defendants in the lawsuit. The filing also alleges that billionaire Huang and other executives named as defendants transformed the business into a personality cult where loyalty to Huang, not performance, was paramount and where questioning and dissent was not tolerated. Yeah, Sullivan alleges that Huang used Christianity to pressure employees to invest their earnings and that they were questioned about their faith and pressured to go to scripture readings. Before the Archegos implosion, Grace and Mercy Foundation had donated more than $80 million to ministries that included the International Justice Mission, Luis Palau Association, uh, Prison Fellowship, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, the King's College, Young Life, the Navigators, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Crew, Youth for Christ, Focus on the Family, and Fuller Seminary. As you can tell, Natasha, that's kind of a who's who among some of the big and most well-known evangelical ministries in the countries. In fact, Huang had been hailed as part of a new evangelical donor class. Has Huang or his attorneys responded to the lawsuit? Well, they have. Uh, Christopher Porino, a lawyer for the Grace and Mercy Foundation, told Christianity Today that Mr. Sullivan's complaint against the Grace and Mercy Foundation is filled with baseless and frivolous allegations, all of which will be decisively refuted in court. 
Our next story involves Steve Morgan, who has been a rising star in evangelicalism. Steve Morgan is the lead pastor of Joshua Church in Austin, Texas, and the leader of a church planting group called The Network. The Network has 26 affiliated churches in the U.S. and the U.K. and also Taiwan. Yeah, the Vine Church in Carbondale, Illinois, is sort of the mother church of the network. It was founded in 1995 by Morgan, and it was originally a part of the Vineyard Association of Churches, an evangelical and charismatic denomination that many of our listeners will probably know about. It was founded by John Wimber. Uh, the Vine Church had a significant campus ministry at nearby Southern Illinois University. Now, the network churches are no longer a part of the Vineyard Association. Morgan left Vineyard in 2006, and at that time he took five churches with him, and that was the beginning of a new, the new group, the network. Since then, the network has grown. As you mentioned, it's now got 26 churches. As many as 7,000 people attend these 26 churches on a weekly basis. Now, following the model of the original Vine Church, many of these churches are planted in cities with a significant college population. Uh, in fact, one person that I talked to in reporting uh, this story, Natasha, told me that in some of these churches, 50% of the regular attenders are, in fact, college students. Uh, some of the campuses uh, and, and towns might sound familiar. Athens, Georgia, the home of the University of Georgia. Bloomington, Indiana, home, of course, of Indiana University. Gainesville, Florida, University of Florida. And State College, Pennsylvania, the home of Penn State. But a group called Leaving the Network says all is not well in the network. They say Morgan was arrested for sexual assault of a minor in 1987. He was a 22-year-old youth leader for a church associated with the Reformed Latter-day Saints. Yeah, he was arrested on May 19th, 1987, to be specific, for aggravated criminal sodomy, which at the time was defined as sodomy with a child who was under the age of 16. The alleged victim in that case was 15 years old, a 15-year-old boy. The complaint said that the alleged crime took place on or around December of 1986. Now, the case was ultimately diverted. What does that mean? Well, diversions sometimes occur in the case of first offenses where the perpetrator agrees to certain penalties. Diversions often result in the sealing of court documents, usually to protect the identity of the victim. In this case, Ministry Watch obtained a copy of the diversion agreement with the name of the victim redacted. Uh, the agreement required Morgan to participate in therapy with a therapist trained in sexual abuse and to pay for any treatment required by the victim. Morgan was also told not to have any contact, either directly or indirectly, with the victim. Now, this appears to be an absolute horrible incident, but it happened 35 years ago, and it happened before Steve Morgan was a Christian. And as far as we know, there have been no reoccurring incidents since. So why is this news now? 
Well, those are all great points to make, and they should be and are, in fact, a part of the story that we posted on our website earlier this week. However, it's also true that a group called Leaving the Network is now calling for an independent investigation of the network, citing this episode as just one of a number of episodes that they say have resulted in spiritual abuse at um, network churches. In fact, they have identified an eight point call to action, which includes not only this call for an investigation, but also a commitment to publicly release the investigation when it is complete and the development of policies and procedures to deal with sex offenders in network churches. I should add that this call to action is not the work of a single or just a few disgruntled former employees. It was signed by 18 former staff, elders, and deacons of network churches, and there's been an online petition organized for others to sign on. So far, more than 250 people have signed the petition. And I would also want to add that Ministry Watch attempted to contact Steve Morgan multiple times by phone or email to get his response, but we did not receive any word back from him. Warren, we need to take a break here, but when we return, leaders of one of the nation's largest and most prominent congregations, Saddleback Church in Southern California, say their new pastor has been cleared of allegations of abuse at his previous church. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, the story I promised before the break. It comes from Saddleback Church in California. First, Warren, can you give us a little bit of background? Yeah, sure. Uh, Back in June, Andy Wood, who is the pastor of Echo Church, a multi-site church based in San Jose, California, was named to be the new pastor at Saddleback Church and the successor to the founding pastor there. Many people know him, best-selling author Rick Warren. We reported on the story at the time. Yeah, we did. But after the announcement, former staff members at Echo raised concerns about the culture at the church, calling it unhealthy, and at least one former staffer referred to Wood as abusive. Questions were also raised about Wood's decision to have disgraced megachurch pastor Mark Driscoll, the founder of the now-defunct Mars Hill Church in Seattle, speak at a leadership conference that Wood runs. Now, Wood, his former church, and Saddleback have repeatedly denied any allegations of abuse. 
Yeah, they did. And on Monday, July 11th, Saddleback's elders sent an email out to the entire congregation of more than 20,000 saying that not only do they continue to deny, but they also did a follow-up investigation by an organization called Vanderblomen, which is a Christian executive search firm, and that that investigation cleared Wood of any wrongdoing. They also said that the church had hired a separate firm, Middlebrook Goodspeed, to review Vanderblomen's work. The team at Vanderblomen interviewed former employees, former volunteers, peers, and current employees to ask about their experiences with Andy. At least that's what the email that Saddleback Elders wrote. The sample can be said to be thorough. And after our work, we concluded there is no systematic pattern of abuse under Andy's leadership, nor was there an individual that we felt was abused. So what happens next? Well, the Vander Blumen report will not be made public, according to a church spokesman. And by the way, normally I would call that a bad move. But in order to get people to speak confidentially and frankly, it may have been essential in this case. Uh, also, the review uh, by the second firm, Middlebrook Goodspeed, uh, is probably going to mitigate any concerns about it not being made public. They'll be able to evaluate, in other words, whether Vander Blomen actually did an adequate job of investigating this situation. So the bottom line is this. Saddleback will move forward with plans for Wood to begin as the new pastor in September, according to the elders. Wood and his wife Stacy, who will serve as a teaching pastor at Saddleback, recently moved to Southern California, according to the church. And Rick Warren himself, he plans to retire in early September. Our next story involves a church on the other coast. Yeah, David Stocker is the pastor of Brave Church in Miami, Florida, all the way across the country from Saddleback. He's being sued, and the lawsuit says that he engaged in extramarital affairs with at least three members of his congregation and used a church credit card to fund activities, including a trip to New York City. Stalker's being sued by his denomination, the Assemblies of God. Yeah, more specifically, he's being sued by Peninsular Florida District Council, sometimes known as Penn Florida, uh, an Assemblies of God umbrella organization that oversees about 300 churches in Florida, including Brave Church. The woman he took to New York and on other trips reported him to Penn Florida and provided investigators with hundreds of texts photos, and videos as evidence. The lawsuit says Stalker violated church bylaws by refusing to resign after a Penn, Florida investigation found that he was, in fact, guilty of gross sexual misconduct and immoral actions. The investigation also found that others, including board members, were discouraged from reporting him in order to protect his reputation. The suit also alleges that Stalker abused alcohol. Yeah, one incident in which he allegedly got so drunk at a Miami Heat professional basketball game and wandered out onto the court was cited in the lawsuit and that he also acted erratically on other occasions. Now, some of the alleged misconduct took place while Stalker was still legally married to his now ex-wife, Natasha, the suit says. The couple had joined the church staff in 2014 as youth pastors. They divorced in 2020. 
Next up is the story of a former Houston area Baptist pastor. He was among nine men arrested late last month in an online chat sting operation conducted by the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office, Internet Crimes Against Children Division. Yeah, Lawrence um, Hopkins, known as Clay Hopkins, 55 years old, was arrested and charged with online solicitation of a minor. Hopkins was an associate pastor at Rolling Brook Fellowship Church in Baytown, which is near Houston, at the time of the arrest. The county arrested the men on various child exploitation charges after gathering evidence during the sting. Police said Hopkins also worked as a youth pastor in the past in Midlothian and College Station, Texas, and said that given the nature of his offense and his potential access to children throughout his employment, uh, the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office is encouraging anyone with information concerning other potential victims to contact authorities. Now, in a statement issued um, by First Baptist College Station uh, to a local television station there, uh, KBTX, uh, they confirmed that Hopkins did in fact work there from 2016 to 2020, and they said the church is, and this is a quote from their statement, saddened over the news regarding the arrest of Dr. Clay Hopkins and the allegations against him. Let's look at one more story before we take another break. What do you have? Well, the Episcopal Church uh, will create a fact-finding commission to research the denomination's role in the federal Indian boarding school system that separated generations of indigenous children from their families and cultures during the 19th and 20th centuries. Bishops and deputies at that mainline denomination scaled back general convention, which ended just a week or so ago, approved what they called the resolution for telling the truth about the Episcopal Church's history with indigenous boarding schools. The resolution encourages the Episcopal Church to hire one or more research fellows to work with dioceses where Episcopal-run boarding schools for indigenous children are, were located and to share records with the indigenous ministries of the Episcopal Church and the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Those actions come as U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Haaland kicks off the Road to Healing, which is a national listening tour in which the secretary will hear from survivors of boarding schools in the United States. Haaland's department recently released the first volume of an investigative report into the country's Indian boarding school system. Yeah, I should also add, Natasha, that this issue has one is one that's really kind of been uh, in the news for the last uh, couple of months, and even really for the last couple of years, as more and more stories about uh, Native American boarding schools and also Indigenous peoples, First Peoples in Canada, um, have uh, also uh, their stories have been coming out about them as well. And it's important to remember that in the early part of the 20th century, when many of these uh, abuses were supposedly have taken place. In fact, at this point, pretty well documented to have taken place. The Episcopal Church was, at that time, an Orthodox church. In fact, many would even consider it uh, an evangelical church, though it has since, of course, fallen away fairly dramatically from its biblical and evangelical 
um, heritage. But uh, in any case, at this point, the Episcopal Church is sort of having a day of reckoning. And I should also add that at the end of July, Pope Francis will travel to Canada to offer an apology to survivors of similar residential schools in that country over after the pontiff received representatives of Canadian Indigenous people at the Vatican earlier this year in April. Well, Warren, we're going to take another break, but when we return, our weekly lightning round of ministry news. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's SaveTheStorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. We like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? The pool of donors in the United States shrank during the first quarter of 2022, and that's January 1 through March 31, compared to a year earlier, uh, even though revenue inched up about 2% during the same time. Uh, The number of donors decreased 5.6%, and donor retention rate, the percentage of donors who gave in 2021 and then gave again in 2022, decreased by more than 6% year over year. That data is from the Fundraising Effectiveness Project released this week. Yeah, that's right. And if the numbers were a little bit too fast and furious for you, I recommend that you go to our website and check it out. We've got it all laid out there. Now, I want to add here, though, that the information in the report was limited to organizations that had at least three or more years worth of data so that they could make those kind of year-over-year comparisons and see whether there were actually trends. Uh, The data came from about uh, 9,600 nonprofits here in the United States. So what does that mean? Well, it means that giving, though it has been up in uh, the last few years, um, is coming from fewer and fewer donors. Fewer people are giving more money. And, of course, the ones giving more money are tend to be more high-capacity donors. Now, Natasha, I don't like to predict the future. My role here is more to report rather than predict. But these data suggest that we could be in for a tough couple of years in the nonprofit sector because we've got much, you know, these smaller donors uh, are not giving as much. The bigger donors who are currently giving more are probably going to be pretty affected by the stock market. You know, one of the uh, clearest indicators of giving, especially for high capacity donors, is whether the stock market goes up or down. And we've seen the stock market go down. Uh, in some sectors have gone down by 30 or 40 percent just since the first of the year, and the market overall has been down about 10 to 20 percent. So, you know, I think we're probably in for some tough going in terms of on the philanthropy front within the next um, year or two. What else do you have for us this week, Warren? 
Well, I want to make sure that I call everyone's attention to a story that, uh, to a couple of stories actually on the website that are a bit out of the ordinary for us. They're what are known in the journalism profession as long reads or long form journalism. Now, we've done some of these from time to time. And what I have noticed every time we post a story that is long, and by long I mean more than 2,000 words, uh, we don't get a lot of readers of those stories in the first week or two. When I look at my sort of my week, metrics, uh, they usually don't end up in the top 10 or even the top 20 stories that we uh, have posted. But when I look a year later, I find that they have a long tail and they often end up being among the most read stories of the year, even if they weren't among the most read stories of the week they were posted. Now, this week, we have a 4,000-word article on the role of Christian ministries in prison reform. Uh, This is a complicated issue, but what's interesting is there is a slow consensus building from both the left and the right about prison reform. Progressives want prison reform because of what they believe to be civil rights and humanitarian concerns, but a growing number of conservatives are asking for reform because of all the waste, fraud, and abuse within the prison system. Uh, conservative icon Richard Vigory, who is sometimes known as the father of conservative direct mail marketing and has been involved in virtually every presidential race uh, for the Republicans, going back to, um, to Ronald Reagan, told me that the prison system in this country is the biggest big government program in the U.S. and that if you are a limited government conservative, you should be paying attention to what's going on in our prison system. And of course, for Christians, the issue is even more urgent because the Bible has specific commands regarding ministering to those in prison. And a lot of Christian ministries, including Prison Fellowship, the nation's largest, have gotten involved. Paul Gladder's story unpacks all these issues that I just mentioned and a whole lot more. I really recommend it to you. So what's the other long-form story? Well, that one is by me. Uh, We just passed the 10-year anniversary of the sentencing of Alan Stanford uh, for one of the biggest financial frauds in history. It was more than $8 billion. He'll likely spend the rest of his life in prison. He was sentenced to more than 100 years. Uh, and it, and it, but an important and untold component of this story is the role that evangelical Christians played in the life of Stanford Financial Group. I unpacked that relationship in a 4,000-word article that we posted this week to remember this fascinating story on the 10-year anniversary of Alan Stanford's sentencing to prison. And of course, each week we feature Ministries Making a Difference. Who did Christina Darnell feature this week? Well, a couple of children's ministries that serve important and often overlooked populations. The first one is Global Reunion. They recently had a, uh, a camp, a summer camp, with um, what they call third culture kids and third culture adults. Now, third culture kids are missionary teens um, that might have been raised in another culture but have to come back to the United States. They're kids that sometimes don't fit in in either the culture they were raised in overseas by their missionary parents or back here in the United States when they come home. And these third culture kids camps held by Global Reunion are an opportunity for these kids to kind of maybe 
build community and, and talk to other kids who are going through similar issues. Youth for Christ Military is the other organization that she featured. And again, kind of a similar dynamic going on here. Uh, a lot of military kids are raised all over the world. They spend a year or two or three on an American base, but it might be in a country overseas. They frequently, um, they're moving around, they have deployed parents. So YFC, Youth for Christ Military, partners with local chaplains, churches, schools, and other organizations to build discipleship relationships with military-connected youth, and they've just reorganized to become more fully integrated into the larger Youth for Christ organization. Any final thoughts before we go today? Well, just a couple of housekeeping items, Natasha. First, I want to mention that I will be in Des Moines, Iowa on Tuesday, uh, July 19th. If you live in Iowa and you're on our daily email list, you should have already received an invitation to a lunch that I'm going to be holding uh, in Des Moines. But if not, shoot me an email and I'll make sure you get an invitation. Uh, my email address is wsmith at ministrywatch.com. Secondly, I want to mention that Ministry Watch has been featured recently in a couple of news outlets. NBC's Nightly News with Lester Holt. We've been on a Rolling Stone magazine article, and uh, we were also featured in the investigative news site ProPublica. That ProPublica story was also picked up by Government Executive and a number of other magazines as well. All that's been within the last couple of weeks. If you get my daily emails, you can find links to those stories there. And finally, I want to mention that next week we'll be taking some time off from the podcast. Just one week, so don't fret. Uh, but we'll be back on the 29th, and you can use next week to Feel free to get caught up on any of the episodes that you might not have listened to. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Ann Steich, Bob Smetanya, Paul Gladder, Paul Clolry, Emily Miller, Christina Darnell, and you, Warren. Special thanks to Religion Unplugged and the Nonprofit Times for contributing materials to this week's podcast. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.